Well, we've now got a black rectangle. For for hoof? Paul? Yeah, I think so. Either that or you're off-centre in frame and you've got the obelisk from 2001 A Space Odyssey behind you. Ah, there he is. There he is. Can, can you guys hear yes. me? Yes. London, this is Moscow. Come in, Moscow. Looks like it's Tokyo based on the shirt. Well, technically Cheltenham because Superdrive's based in Cheltenham. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to pretend they're from Tokyo. I can also semi-see the contents of your laptop screen reflected in the back of the microphone. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> That's because he's got shiny balls. Look at them shine. Been trying to remember the name of the main guy from Fury Road now. Not Lord Humongous, that was his predecessor. Uh, shiny and Chrome. Yeah, anyway, Shiny and Chrome is my point. Immortan Joe. Immortan Joe, there you go. Alright, we can resume now. Man, season. Uh, remedial nerding was a long time ago. <laughs> it's almost like we don't pay attention to what we watch. It's in the past, it doesn't matter. But it still hurts. I've got no idea what you're talking about. You need to go and watch The Lion King. Is that a stage play? Technically, yes. <laughs> or a weird CGI animation thing? Technically, yes. Also, technically, yes. <laughs> Maybe we can put three Lion Kings into the remake season along with the six Robin Hoods. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, Dalali. This week's episode of Remedial Nerding, the podcast where three nerds force each other to watch something that they really should have already seen. Your friendly neighbourhood nerds this week are Nathan, Dan and me, Paul. Remember, there's no such thing as a bad nerd. Right, let's see if I can get the right episode number this week. Hello and welcome to Remedial Nerding Season 6, Episode 12. 13. It is 12, not 11. Anyway, whatever number it is, it is Ant-Man. Ant-Man with a fantastic cold open and some of the best de-aging I've seen in a movie. Someone's just used heavy use of the Snapchat blur filter. One of the main actors in this is Michael Douglas, and he also plays Michael Douglas in 1989. But they didn't do the simple thing of just filming that one in 1989. They just tried it in the can for... uh, I was going to say 10 years, but that's probably not accurate. No, this was what, 2015? 15, yeah, so... I mean, it's got to be because there was so much cinematography of young Michael Douglas, right? That it was easy to get that composite to just plaster over his face digitally. I didn't actually think about how they did it, but it's an extremely effective thing, because the, yeah, the, the cold open is set in 1989, and it looks so 1989. I mean, if they can get someone who looks a bit like Peter Cushing and make him actually look and sound like Peter Cushing for Rogue One, and he's, you know, dead. <laughs> then I think digitally painting over someone's face to get rid of a few wrinkles is just... It's not really anything that Vogue's not doing with models anyway. Yeah, but that Rogue One was a little bit no, uncanny valley. It was it was still that very plasticky effect. You know? It was very obvious. Whereas I thought that the cold open, the ageing of Michael Douglas was... They could have, like, time-machined him in. Oh, yeah, it was absolutely spot on. 
Yeah, so the cold open is him saying, I'm resigning from S.H.I.E.L.D. because you're trying to duplicate my technology. And the whole thing of MCU is that we make exactly one of everything. (laughs) (laughs) I thought the whole thing of MCU was no one ever really dies. (laughs) Well, that too. Tony doesn't really want to outfit everyone with Iron Man suits. Rhodey got one by chance during the midlife crisis. And Hank Pym is of the same feeling. This technology is dangerous. It's mine. I'm going to keep it. It's mine. My own. My precious. (laughs) Yeah, Having loads of them would be bad. Having zero of them would also be bad. (laughs) As chance would have it, the correct number is exactly one under my control. (laughs) Yeah. During the... uh... The, the storming out and I resign. You get uh, an old Peggy, or an older Peggy. Or, more accurately, a slightly less aged Peggy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose. That uh, dialed back the talcum powder 10% from the last time we saw her in the film. <laughs> and we get an old man Stark. Um, it's always good to see. And then we get a, a third person who's chief of defence for S.H.I.E.L.D.? who makes some comment about Hank Pym's dead wife and gets punched in the face. Rightly so. That guy's a dick. Yeah, <laughs> he is a dick. Because this, there, should o- them, there can only be one, is the whole conflict of the film, isn't it? It's Michael Douglas doesn't want there to be loads of Ant-Men. 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 Ant-Mans. He doesn't want an Ant-Brigade. <laughs> I think it is very much the, the same way as... Iron Man 1 was shit, bad people got my my toys, I'm going to take them back and hold on to them. It is very much in the, the original Iron Man frame of mind. We're meant to use this for good, bad people have got them, ergo it's bad. And considering the Ant-Man is operating during the Cold War era, they didn't want subatomic commies. <laughs> yeah, this... It reminds me of Watchmen in a way because it's one of the first times that we've got a superhero title that gets inherited. Because Michael Michael Douglas, he's got a name in the film, but I'm just going to keep calling him Michael Douglas. Is Ant Man <laughs> in, in the Cold War, and then that title is taken over by some variety of Chris in the present day. Chris. Yeah, who is he? Who's the main guy? Scott is the character name. Scott Lang, Paul Rudd. Paul Rudd. Oh, he's not even called Chris. That doesn't make much sense. <laughs> Oh, damn it. I can't even check my notes to see what you said about this on the laptop. I've had I've, yet again in the saga of my technical issues. I've had to reinstall on the laptop, and it's now not compatible with notes. I mean, all I know about it is that it involved guy goes small, Ant Man can shrink. I didn't know, although possibly could have guessed that he also has the power to command ants because why not? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, but an action film. Yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty spot on. Yeah. Um, so in the, the setup. After the cold open, we find that Dr. Pym has lost control of his company. His protege has discovered his secret formula, or he's working to replicate the secret formula that he'd denied ever existed. And he's very close to creating what are essentially miniature Iron Man suits with people inside, because they can fly and have robotic laser arms. And they are going to be purchased by 1989 bad guy who got punched in the face, who I want to say works for Hydra? Yeah, that's certainly who he's selling them to at the end, if not before. Yeah, so that character, who I can't remember if he's... Is he called Darren? Hmm. Darren Cross. Darren Cross. 
In my internal notes, I had him down as Anakin. (laughs) (laughs) The jaded apprentice. Yeah, he was resentful of Ant-Man Senior. Ant-Man Kenobi. On account of having strung along for his entire professional career. He was granted a seat on the council, but was not conferred the title of master. Yeah, and he kills a load of sand people slash cute lambs. Oh, those poor lambs. I mean, that is one of the first of two variants on the, or three really, variants on the kick the dog moment in this film. Oh yeah, he's, he's trying to get his ant brigade suit to work, but unfortunately it's got a nasty tendency to turn people into kind of unpalatable bits of a badly cooked chicken casserole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so then there's also we've already mentioned the ant commander powers, and despite the fact that the ants are treated very much using Soviet tactics throughout this film, one of them gets shot later on, and it's a big sad moment. Because it's the one ant he's allowed to name. Yeah, because he named that one. They're like, Anthony, you're with me. All your other 500 million ants, go and bite something electrical. <laughs> I wasn't even thinking of that bit when Anthony gets shot. I was thinking of a bit when they accidentally make the ant the size of a dog and it literally gets kicked. <laughs> But that's okay, because then the last time you see that ant, it is underneath the kitchen table getting fed scraps, exactly like a dog. I've got a feeling that you could map up pretty much every scene in this film to a corresponding article on TV tropes. It it is very trope-heavy. I mean, I'm not saying that the previous Marvel films have been avant-garde, daring explorations of the bleak realities of the human soul or anything, but this one really lays in the... What's what's the word I'm looking at there? There's no such word as lays in. This one really loads up on the tropes. I mean, there's the, there is literally the meme for electrical engineering masters. That is just two back to back scenes from this movie with no editing or line adjustment. Where he says he's just out of jail and he says, "I've got a master's in electrical engineering. I'm gonna be fine." And it's, then it's a hard cut to him in Baskin Robbins saying, "Welcome to Baskin Robbins." I mean, I like the way the film, the whole film is. It's it's a heist film. Yeah, that's true. Because Michael Douglas wants there to be only one. Anakin's slowly building two, so they're going to break in, steal the prototype, and flush all the notes down the toilet on the way out. Ah, well, that's the second heist of the heist film. The first heist is when he's just got fired from Baskin Robbins, and then ends up <laughs> getting meet up with his cellmate. It's like, oh, you're you're a robber. You can rob this man. It's like, no, no, no. I'm an ethical burglar. You know, I'm an ethical hacker. I just stole some zeros off lots of rich people. Ooh, a safe, you say? I'm an electrical engineer. I know, I'll do all sorts of mechanical engineering stuff. <laughs> Let me just do a quick search here. TV tropes, gentleman, thief. Yep, there it is. <laughs> as we were all told as apprentices that it's easier to train an electrician to be a mechanic than it is a mechanic to be an electrician. I don't know if this stands the test of time, but we were a group of electricians, so it always sat well. Do you think Baskin Robbins paid to be in this film, or were they? Did they not pay enough to not be in this film? <laughs> <laughs> okay, it seems like it might have been a blackmail situation. <laughs> Baskin Robbins always finds out because it's like, yeah, the the dramatic wellspring of that part is given the choice between a life of crime or working for your company. What are people going to choose? Obviously, life of crime. <laughs> so I've just got the uh, the Wikipedia development section open about this and it's super interesting how long and convoluted even by modern film standards this development is oh yeah it seems like this one got a bit of dose of what do they call it development hell a little bit yeah people quitting halfway through and 
scenes being mashed together. Well, it's not even quite like that. They first pitched it in the 80s, but because Disney themselves were making Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, they, they didn't bother. Oh, so the connection's even more direct. I'm going to claim I knew that all along, and that's why I made that claim. <laughs> uh, in 2000, someone tried to purchase their film rights to it, and in May, Artisan Entertainment announced a deal with Marvel to make it. In 2003 is when Edgar Wright enters the scene, and he was he wrote a treatment for Artisan which then eventually got pitched to Marvel Studios in 2006. That's kind of where it enters the developmental hell. And it kind of has been bubbling on in the background from then through everything we've gone through from the the MCU up to this point before it actually got made. This does seem like more evidence for the case of we've been wanting to make this film for ages, but now we've got an excuse to sell it because it's technically Iron Man 12. <laughs> Although... Um, Edgar Wright still gets credited with producer or writer. He didn't actually finish the project because he didn't like the way it was going. Yeah, he was down as like screenwriter on the IMDb page, but I, there were definitely some like directorial moments where I thought that's an Edgar Wright thing. And yeah, I'm trying to remember what they were now. I mean, it's got a lot more of the slapstick comedy from some of his other films than most of the MCU has. Oh yeah, I also think that it's got the element of characters who are kind of losers much more so than any previous MCU film. Everyone's been at least semi-cool, whereas in this one, like the character of Louise, I think, had this been set, it set in Gloucestershire rather than California, that would have been Nick Frost. Yeah. <laughs> Although the guy playing Chris still had to go on a massive crash diet because still Hollywood. You can't be eating Cornettos on set. What else was there? Oh yeah, there's a scene earlier on where... so. The first heist, I think you were going to talk about this before, the first heist, where which is on the information of... My friend's girlfriend's sister worked as a cleaner and she saw a safe somewhere. Well, that's good enough intel for me. <laughs> Turns out that safe contains the Ant-Man suit and it was all a trick to recruit Scott for this job. But he uh, takes it home and just tries putting it on in the bathroom and then goes on a, a wild caper through the floorboards. The trial by water. Yeah, but that was one of the scenes where I said this is uh, an Edgar Wright moment. Because when he's taking it off again in a mad panic, there is a jump cut from him taking it off to him taking it off, but from a different angle, and then back to the first one again. And at that moment, I thought, okay, it's like I'm watching Spaced again. (laughs) So I can't find anywhere that says whether or not Baskin Robbins was paid or whether they paid. (laughs) But um, apparently it was originally meant to be Chipotle. But Chipotle didn't particularly like the context in which they were using their brand. So filmmakers Chipotle. considered using a fake Mexican chain called Chipodix, but decided it wouldn't be as, as effective. They contemplated Jamba Juice, but eventually landed on Baskin Robbins because, quote, who doesn't like Baskin Robbins? <laughs> so it's the theory that they're not going to do that much damage to the brand because it's too beloved. Yep. Uh, and they felt that the bright pastel interiors proved a funny contrast to the movie's prison scenes and the character's dark criminal past. I mean, it's not exactly the Joker up in there. It's not like dark and gritty. Like, say he stole some zeros and drove some guy's Bentley into a swimming pool. You can definitely appreciate or side with Scott. You know, he's out of prison. He's trying to go straight. He wants to provide for his daughter, but can't lasts about a week before he goes back to a life of moderately petty crime. Let me just type in here, TV tropes, one last job. Yep. <laughs> I mean, he literally decides to do it after doing, literally on the back of an envelope or a napkin. 
how many days it would take him to save up if he had a shitty job to get an apartment and see his daughter and it comes out like 377 days and it's like nope that's too long i need the monies yeah because he's what separated i presume while he's been in prison or maybe earlier as a consequence of his life of crime i'm not really sure they don't go into that a great deal but the new man on the scene is what's he called paxton yeah he's also a policeman i thought he was going to get the kind of liar liar treatment where he's actually the most genuinely good dude in the film, but is constantly treated as a villain because he's the romantic rival <laughs> of the protagonist. But actually, I think he does get a fair shake in this. Yeah, well, he starts off trying to do the right thing in general, but we obviously know it's the wrong thing because we're all rooting for Scott, but then actually mm. does end up helping him at the end. Note from my research here, in all the, the throughout, there are various like uh, cinematic set pieces of you know battles on a tiny scale. One of we already mentioned the trial by water, which is where he accidentally turns on the Ant-Man suit while in the bath, and someone comes and turns on the tap. Um, and that also then leads to him at one point like clinging onto the grooves on an LP as it's being spun. Yeah, that was a little bit odd, actually, where he's just like, upstairs in the bedroom and it's all kind of quiet, ends up falling through the floor into a rave. Yeah. Like the middle of the afternoon, just downstairs with one floor. It's like, how could they not hear it? I mean, the rave had been established in a previous shot. On the shot while he's walking up the stairs into his flat, which admittedly does seem to have incredible soundproofing in the floors, but yeah, that, that's not the point. Didn't notice that. What I was going to say is that that put me in mind of a quote from like an early surrealist who said something like, a person who can't imagine a horse galloping on a, the surface of a tomato is an idiot. Making the point that the imagination is capable of encompassing things that are clearly impossible. And so things can look... What I was The point I was trying to build to there is that a tiny man clinging onto a gigantic LP and being spun around by it seemed realistic to me. It, it made sense, didn't it? No, it was well well realised. It was actually not realistic because I've got a feeling that at that scale, the air would be as equivalent as thick as like walking through water or something. But it made sense. I mean, the physics also are troublesome because early on they say that it works by reducing the space between atoms, but then he becomes smaller than one atom later on. (laughs) Also, how does he breathe? Well, exactly. He's just gulping down lungfuls of golden syrup when when he's at that size. (laughs) I I think that was one of the other reasons they have to be in the suit. You can only be in the suit for so long. I think they cover that. It's either in this one or it's in. it might be in Ant-Man 2. That might be coming up in a future one. I don't think that was mentioned, but... Anyway, the person who said that thing about the horse and tomatoes, that was Andre Breton, which I worked out by Googling. But the first suggested search for when you type in Andre Breton is, how did Andre Breton die? Do you want to take any guesses? Syphilis. A French uh, surrealist in the eight, born in 1896 dying of syphilis. How ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not the case. Damn. According to Google, first result, click down the result, it's respiratory insufficiency. <laughs> Which seems like that's how everyone dies, isn't it? Not necessarily. Like, if you get shot in the head, the problem is not the fact that you can't breathe in. Mm, yeah, I suppose it's just incidental, <laughs> it's, isn't it? Th- there's just too much air in the brain at that point. That's that's the problem. If you if you want a generic cause of death, you know, multiple organ failure is probably the, the most generic one you're going to get, because it doesn't really state <laughs> how your organs fail, or even if they're still in or attached to your body. I, I just like natural causes. What, on the basis that everything is part of nature, therefore everything must be natural causes? Yeah. It's all part of quantum causality. There's 
probably been a couple of coroners who have written down supernatural causes over the course of history. (laughs) (laughs) We've drifted way off. That's that's fine. That's totally on brand. Given that we're not going for a chronological approach to this one, my absolute favourite bit of the film is the fight on the Thomas the Tank Engine. Oh yeah, the climactic final battle takes place in the... um, a strange daughter, well, not she's daughter's not strange. The daughter's um, toy train set with, as you say, a Thomas the Tank Engine, which then, due to some size ray shenanigans, gets made gigantic and bursts through a wall. <laughs> I love, the bit I love about that is the juxtaposition in that you've got Ant Man and the Yellow Jacket fighting on top of the train and everything. It's like you know, when they're on the train back in Captain America and it's all really mm. loud and there's lots of wind going, and then it switches back to the normal perspective and it is literally just a little train track going. Yeah, you, you come back to the wide shot and you see a, a toy train fall off a track. And <laughs> yeah. With little explosions going off around it. Hmm. Yeah, that when the, the gigantified Thomas the Tank Engine going through the wall put me in mind of Skyrim, which is probably an indication of how diseased <laughs> an understanding I have of Skyrim. <laughs> but it seems like you know what I'm talking about. What, the mod that turns like all the dragons all into the Thomas the Tank Engine. <laughs> yeah, the, I think it's called a Very Useful Dragons or something similar. <laughs> I see. I want to know if that was if that was the intent. I mean, I've got a feeling that this predates Skyrim, but I might be wrong about that. So I've got as far as Skyrim T H O first suggestion is Skyrim Tom- Skyrim Thomas the Tank Engine. Skyrim was the eleventh of November two thousand and eleven. Oh, so it would have been out for four years. Wow! Really useful dragons at Skyrim Nexus. <laughs> You're also probably thinking, man, dragons suck. I wish someone would replace them with Thomas the Tank Engine. Earliest article for Skyrim mod turns dragons into Thomas the Tank Engine, December 2013. So it took a couple of years to go from dragons to Thomas the Tank Engine. Yeah, the Chekhov's gun of this, uh, well, it's absolutely littered with Chekhov's guns, but one of them <laughs> is that Michael Douglas's partner in this, the, the original Cold War era, the Wasp, not to be confused with the sequel Wasp, as that's foreshadowed heavily in the end credit scene, um, was lost to the quantum realm by attempting to shrink beyond the, I don't know, beyond 11 on the dial. <laughs> I thought you were going to talk about a Chekhov's tank, where they show you quite prominently <laughs> three or four times throughout the film that he's got a tank on his keyring, which turns out to be a literal mm. tank that he's had shrunk down and uses it to escape from the exploding building. Lovely line delivery by um, Jealous Husband Paxton, or whatever his name was, the police guy. Because he is on the scene describing what's going on and says something like, um, there's multiple gunfire and alarms are going off. Beat. Also, there's a tank. <laughs> Just a great delivery of, all right, I'm officially out of my depth now. Yeah. I, I went on, a, on a, a Google hunt for the connection between Thomas Tank and Ant-Man. And whilst there's no mention of Skyrim in here, other than that Thomas the Tank had made it into Skyrim the year before. There is the story of how they got the rights to use Thomas Tank Engine. I was about to ask, is, pub- is Thomas the Tank Engine public domain? But I guess not. No. Um, and whilst they were working on that entire scene, they didn't have the rights to use Thomas. So they essentially had to take that scene to the people that own Thomas and go, this is what we want to do. Um, they agreed because they found it funny, but they had some stipulations. Nobody could be tied to the tracks and run over by Thomas. Hmm. Thomas couldn't do anything that could be perceived by children as evil Thomas. Thomas had to stay neutral in the battle. I mean, they're all quite fair stipulations. <laughs> yeah. 
Something that I did not realise is that uh, Postman Pat struggled and eventually failed to get the licensing rights for Royal Mail. <laughs> the first 30 years of its existence, it was just a big ongoing violation that they just kind of looked the other way at because it was the BBC. <laughs> I suppose you can't look the other way at something, can you? Looked away from. Just politely ignored. I oh, see, now I want to watch Postman Pat's Banging Day Out. Have either of you seen that? I've heard yes. of it, but not seen it. I feel like it's one of those things where I understand everything that's in it already. Oh yeah, you, if you've heard about it, you don't really need to watch it, apart from the fact that it's awesome and you really need to watch it. <laughs> it's like a lot of Onion articles, you kind of see the headline, understand the premise, and then you don't really need to read it. Yeah. I mean, pretty much like the Thomas the Tank article I've just read, which starts with the title, Ant-Man Granted Thomas Tank Engine Cameo, as long as the train didn't do anything evil or homicidal. I didn't need to read further than that. <laughs> At saved you a click. Postman Pat's Banging Day Out is right up there with the Rainbow episode where they talk about their twangers. You mean the episode that's not really an episode that they made as a piss take? Yeah. That starts off with Zippy peeling a banana going, one skin? (laughs) That's the one. I think possibly just because, I don't know, in retrospect, now I'm an adult and and now that I am an adult and a parent, I wonder if it's just because my parents hated it, but that, that was never on our TV. I always assumed I was just slightly too young for it, but I don't think that's the case. It's like being too young for the Teletubbies. Anyway, as a re- well, I think we're too old for the Teletubbies, aren't we? <laughs> I think Teletubbies were just about coming around for when I was leaving university, the people coming in would watch it while stoned. <laughs> I think that's the, the milestone in time of when the Teletubbies came out. No, that was like well before then. Because before I... My family moved, so when I was like twelve. Yeah, what I'm saying is that the people coming up in like 2005 or something would have watched it as children. Yeah, yeah. My my sister was definitely a a telly tubby child. Yeah, whereas we would have been like six or seven, and therefore far too sophisticated. I think we were more like 12. twelve or thirteen. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well. Anyway, we are not here to talk about the goddamn telly <laughs> I've watched. Far too much of them, the new version of it. I can't wait for Oliver to grow up a little bit and start watching decent TV. <laughs> I've got some bad news for you. Well, at the moment, he's obsessed with a Netflix original called Chip and Potato, which is mm. a psychedelic cartoon about a, a four year old pug starting kindergarten called Chip and her little anthropomorphic fluffy mouse that only she can see is alive called Potato. It's very weird, but Oliver finds it absolutely hilarious. Apparently Ant-Man was the most, uh, sold the most family tickets of any MCU film up to this point. A little nugget I read on the Wikipedia page. I can understand that. Yeah. it's Yeah, it's got the lowest stakes in some ways. Although they do turn, uh, like, a grown adult man into goop as well. Yeah, but it's significantly less gory than just, like, shooting him with a gun. Oh yeah, it's not very, it, not very it's gory. It's zot, and then he's gone. And gets wiped up with on tissue. Yeah. Yeah. Although there were those guys that were in the helicopter that were shot by the macro lasers or the micro lasers of the yellow jacket whilst they were bouncing around in the briefcase. Well, I mean, that was after he you actually shot the pilots. Hang on, hang on. That That's another Edgar Wright moment when there's a fight scene happening inside the briefcase and he accidentally activates Siri and puts on... I can't remember exactly. I think it was Queen. No, it, I don't think it was Queen. 
Ah, uh, it wasn't Don't Stop Me Now. No, but that would have been brilliant. Ant-Man briefcase song. Uh, Plain Song by The Cure. Yes, I've heard of Nescafe, Dow, Egbert's, Kenko and Costa. Now show me the video. Now I'm wondering if there's one of these things like Steve's list of cultural achievements that varied by region. I'm not saying this to defend my claim that it was actually Queen's Don't Stop Me Now, because I'm, <laughs> I realise it wasn't. <laughs> but I'm saying it's possible that it was the cure in the US market and, I don't know, Men at Work or something in Australia. That was such a good scene. With the, the bit of the, the green polo that got smushed. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about now. Green polo, I presume, is going to be some weird American candy that we don't have here. You get fruit polos in the UK. You certainly used to. I've never seen one. Oh, I say never seen. I've not seen one in a very long time. But I used to love me some fruit polos. I'm pretty sure I used to get them out sometimes out of the vending machine, sixth form. Tell you what, fruit polo sounds like something that a surrealist would have invented. <laughs> no, no, that's fruit polio. <laughs> polio is the least romantic disease you can possibly imagine. I mean, yeah. It's like a melting clock, only it's a polo, and it's made of fruit for some reason. Americans don't have polo, so they don't even know what we're talking about. <laughs> no, apparently it wasn't a polo it, in the film. They were lifesavers, which looked like fruit polos. <laughs> I don't know if it's the American brand name or if it's just the, it turns out you can't really patent the idea of a sweet that's got a hole in it. <laughs> where where are we? Uh, I don't know, because we've, we've bounced around. We have bounced around. A lot. There was a heist. They tried to steal the, what do they call it? The yellow jacket, the military version of the Ant-Man suit. But Anakin saw them coming and lured them into a big fight scene in a briefcase and then a train set. Oh, and in the the end, they break his regulator and he gets scrunched. Well, yeah, doesn't he deliberately set it to 11 so that he can go through the, between the molecules of the titanium to get into the yellow jacket and then just start wrecking shit, which he successfully does. Yeah, smashes the shit out of the electronics. Oh, that's what you're saying. Sorry, that's what you were saying. He gets crumpled. Yeah, and then Cross in the yellow jacket gets crumpled. So does that then mean that Scott was tiny and subatomic inside Cross in his yellow jacket when he crumpled? Are we getting some miniaturization inception going on here? That might explain why he then went into the quantum realm, as was previously mentioned with Wasp version 1, but then eventually um, Deus Ex Machina is way back out by virtue of having some embiggening bombs in his back pocket. Back pocket. He just manages to put inside the regulator and bam, it works again. Well, he's an electrical engineer. (laughs) Who knew? And if that doesn't mean soldering two random bits of technology together and hoping for the best, then what does it mean? (laughs) I did like that you see Cross doing all his experiments with his sheep and trying to shrink them outside of a suit and just gooifying them. And Hank Pym is, here's some throwing discs. The red one makes stuff smaller. The blue one makes it bigger. At no point does he say, do not hit living people with the red one. (laughs) I mean, that's a pretty important safety briefing. That's a good point. I was distracted trying to work some way to make this work into a Jefferson Airplane reference, but couldn't get there. Yeah, there seems to be... For all the danger that Anakin seems to have with his technology, they are extremely cavalier about it in the the Pym household. Only so far as Scott is expendable, because Hank won't put his daughter Hope into the suit in case she goes off on one, uh, like his wife. Oh yeah, we haven't even mentioned Hope. 
the whole <laughs> parallel thing is that Wasp version 2, as she's going to be in the sequel, I presume, is Hank Pym's daughter, who he refuses to allow to become Ant... Well, I guess Ant-Man, asterisk, Ant-Woman. On account of the fact that if he does get gooified, he'd much rather it was some random ex-con rather than his only daughter. I think we've done her a massive disservice by not talking about her at all to this point, because she's actually quite central to a lot of the story points. Yeah, and also quite different from a lot of characters. Like This is extremely distinct from Pepper Potts, for example, which was is not a given for women in film. No, given they're both kind of the high-profile corporate female type, she's seems a lot more physical and physically competent, even without getting um, fire-potioned up like Pepper did. Yeah, that is... Well, they draw attention to it in explicit terms, which is that she is the much more obvious choice to be the protagonist of this film. Except that they don't know yet that it's a family-friendly romp that will not result in anyone being boiled into quantum foam forever. Daddy says no. I do like how, um, unlike a lot of characters, often it is just assumed that, oh yeah, they they've they know martial arts, or they're really good at this. They're really good. they take the time to set out her backstory. And they're like, yeah, her mum died and the dad didn't cope, so he sent her off to boarding school. So she had a top-notch education, and she took up martial arts as a way of dealing with her daddy issues because her dad's a dick, and abandoned her to deal with her feelings on her own. So you know she's really good at kicking the shit out of stuff as well. He also enjoyed the long training montage where they tried to get Scott, who's already been using parkour in the pur- for the been using parkour for the purposes of burglary, using his powers for awesome, if you will, <laughs> and do- doing his prison fight training. Yeah, um, they have a scene of him having to what, run down a corridor, jump, shrink, go through a keyhole, re-embiggen on the other side, which of course gives us the comedy of just. Hank and Hope standing outside a door and hearing it thump and then cut to them in different outfits, another thump, cut to them in different outfits again, another thump. Liked that bit. Yeah, they didn't overplay that at all. I like the bit just after that where he's trying to get to know the ants and keeps getting panicked by them and then he begins himself whilst in the lawn and it's just their half (laughs) chest sticking out going, okay, yeah, yeah, I know what I did wrong. (laughs) This one, he gets swarmed by all the little ants and then pops up that first time. It's like, that was a lot scarier a second ago. <laughs> I did like the the chase montage after Scott escapes from the, the giant magnifying glass viewing lens for the yellow jacket and then ends up bouncing through the lab next door and making his way over the model of the lab. Oh, yeah. There's an architect's model in there for some reason. As real-sized bullets are flying past. Part of the presentation that was there in the previous day where he let it be known to Hank that they were renaming the company after him and selling off the yellow jackets. But, you know, dig that knife in. Yeah, the set pieces are tremendous in this film, I thought. What's the actual connections to the MCU? Because there's the MCU as a whole. The only other Avenger in there is, what's he called, Falcon? The Falcon, yeah. Because part of their mission, they need to go and steal a signal disruptor or something, a signal jammer. There's a MacGuffin which is in a, a locked woodshed in upstate New York, except wouldn't you know it, that's the one they converted into an Avengers base and didn't fully finish clearing out at the end of the last film. So he has a brief comedy fist fight with the Falcon, who then pulls a gun on him and starts shooting, but never mind. <laughs> I mean, he's lucky he didn't meet Steve or 
Captain or Vision or Thor or just literally anyone apart from Sam. They never answered the, the where is everyone else question. There's a point early on where he says something like, this seems like a problem you should call the Avengers for, and Hank Pym's <laughs> response is, nah, fuck that. <laughs> this is a standalone film, also I hate the Starks. <laughs> Which I thought was a very good position to put him in for later. It makes it known exactly where things stand. Something, something, always pay their debts. Anyway, let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> and there's also the um, the other meta moment is at the very end where someone kind of turns to camera and says, did you know that Spider-Man is in the MCU now? That's right, we got the license from Sony. <laughs> it's not those exact words. They say something like, oh, there's this guy who can crawl up walls. But that's the message I took away from it. I think we have missed also some of the best ancillary characters in any MCU movie. The trio of crooks that are helping Scott. Yeah, the schlubby losers who Edgar Wright, I the, presume, wrote into the script. <laughs> they have some classic comedy moments. My favourite being the sat outside during the heist and then accidentally leaning on the van horn that just so happens to be the exact same tune that was played outside the cop's house when Scott left. Yeah, it was a pretty big giveaway. And then getting away and going and stealing the uh, the cop car, getting out of the way enough. Oh yeah, that's the other, related to them, is the other, the other, another Edgar Wright moment, I thought, which is, is when someone is telling a story and we see scenes from it, but hear the anecdote, but the lip syncing in the scenes is synchronised to the paraphrase that the person's giving. I do love those bits. Oh, very good scenes. Yeah. I think it's just the way it was put together, like you said, the, the full backwards story of I was talking to my cousin who was talking to his friend who's on the softball team and his girlfriend's a cleaner for the rich old man and then they bring it back around right at the end with Stan Lee as the bartender and the the hot reporter woman and asking him if he knows a guy because they want to get in touch with Ant-Man. Is that in an end-credit sequence? Because I think... Or mid-credit sequence, maybe. Because I thought the credits started and I thought to myself, I haven't seen Stan Lee in this film. That's weird. Had he died at this point? But no, I there he is. He's the bartender. Towards the end, but I don't think it is an end-credit scene. I think it's like the closing scene. It, yeah, it's after. It's in the denouement, if not before then. Yeah, I think it's pretty much the last thing. Oh, fact, yeah, it is the very last thing, and it's just described on Wikipedia as later, Lang meets up with Louis, who tells him that Wilson is looking for him, which does not do that scene any kind of justice at all. <laughs> so the two bits in the credits, so the, the mid-credit scene, which is where Pym shows, shows Hope the new Wasp suit that's not finished. Oh yeah, we've got Ant-Man suit too, this one's got wings and also boobs. Yep. So it would be weird to give it to Scott. <laughs> Uh, and then we get to the end credit scene, which goes back to Sam and Steve. And it turns out they've got Buck- Bucky Steph. with his arm literally in a vice. Oh, yeah, in a radical change of tone from the <laughs> comedy shenanigans of Ant-Man is now Steve in a dirty T-shirt in a dirty garage with, I forget what his name is, Bucky or possibly Gunhaver in a steam press or something, or Tezzeret. So if you haven't got anything more to say about Ant-Man, this is quite a good segue to talk about next week's film. Oh, is that is it literally... Well, I suppose it would have to be, wouldn't it? Because these films are coming out kind of annually at this point. About three a year at this point. Oh, right. 
Also, in that case, maybe they could have skipped a few, but I'm guessing, is it Civil War next, then? It is Civil War next. I expected more build-up before this, because, like, Accords are mentioned, and I know they're a Civil War thing, but they were never mentioned when they were in Sokovia. No, I don't know how much of a spoiler this would be to say that the Accords are a plot element in Civil War, which would imply that that end credit scene actually takes place after Civil War. No, well, we'll find out where it fits in. Well, I will find out. You guys already know. I will find out where it fits into the timeline. No, but I have then since forgotten because I haven't watched Civil War for quite a while. I'm quite looking forward to this one. I've always wanted them to give more credit to the opposing point of view. And it feels like if it's in the mouth of a protagonist, then maybe that will be the case. I mean, thinking of the MCU as like a whole meta show, there's usually a point where there's some level of conflict between the protagonists. Everyone can only play nice for so long. I mean, look at Star Trek The Next Generation. They had to wait for uh, Gene Roddenberry to die so they could put some interpersonal <laughs> conflict in and the show got a lot better for it. <laughs> I don't know what you mean. <laughs> so Nathan's prediction for Civil War was billionaire playboy wants more government regulation, question mark, while Captain America does not, question mark, question mark, fearing that this would make him a tool of the United States, question mark, question mark, question mark. <laughs> I'm slightly worried that this is going to be Captain America in the the Second Amendment protects my right to have a super shield and kill people whenever I want to. <laughs> no, it gives you the right to go and remove the four limbs of animals from the genus Ursus. Where would you two rank Ant-Man in the, the spectrum? You know, I, I rewatched this one specifically because I enjoy it and I've got to say it's taken my top spot again. <laughs> It's just a lot. It's just so much fun. I I wouldn't put it top, but it's certainly top end. It's definitely top third. I'm going to say number one with a bullet. If I'm being completely honest, it is my favourite film since The Last Jedi, but I know that's going to make a lot of people angry to hear it, so instead I'm going to say it's my, my favourite film since Prince, Princess Mononoke. It's not quite a unanimous decision, but we're all on the same end of the uh, the scale with it. Big thumbs up. I don't know if it's necessarily a great film, but it's definitely a delicious film. It's a really easy watching film that you can watch again and have a chuckle to. It's an easygoing, light popcorn flick. Well, I think the fact that they dialed the stakes back down a lot helps. Yeah, in some ways it reminded me of Guardians of the Galaxy, except that had the opposite problem of the biggest possible stakes. There was a whole civilization that we never heard of before that was in peril. Yeah, somehow that reduced the stakes for a lot of it. <laughs> like, ultimately, if this film had had the bad... If they'd got the bad ending of the film, it would have been like, oh, shucks. Now we just have a super small military force. Yeah. Albeit controlled by Hydra. Yeah, that would have been bad. But that didn't happen. So now they just get to kick the shit out of each other. <laughs> Let's go and find out how that plays out for them. Spirella. Badly. That's it for this week, peeps. Tune in next time for more remedial nerding. <laughs> <laughs>